This is They Create Worlds, episode 200, The History of Handheld Games, part 3. You may have noticed that this episode is a bit longer than you're used to. We have asked for it, and you have delivered your testimonials, your thoughts, your prayers, your wishes, your whatevers about They Create Worlds and your experiences. So, here they are in all their glory, spread out throughout this episode for you to all enjoy every single one that we got in here that we have grabbed, said, spoke, and you can enjoy them. So thank you for supporting us through 200 episodes, and here's to many, many more. And I say this from Alex and me, thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I am joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello? Well, Alex, it's been a long time coming. Many, many years. But you have finally, through all of your inability to shut up for more than 10 seconds about video game history, dragged this terrifying thing out to 200 episodes. That's right. I know exactly how to talk about video game history ad nauseum for an entire 200-episode-long stretch that no one in their right mind could possibly listen to. Yet, here we are. We have fans. I count at this time, oh, I don't know, something around 14 of them still with us, listening to us, wondering what the heck is going on. And then we have you, the people at home who just downloaded this for some reason, thinking, you know, 200 might be fun or something. I don't know, Jeffrey. It's just weird. I know. It's terrifying. I should go drink more Diet Coke now. That's right. And while you're at it getting that Diet Coke, go and mix me an Amaretto Sour. (laughs) All right. That's enough of this Freaky Friday (laughs) nonsense now. (laughs) Yes, it is the big 200. We are both very excited uh, about this milestone throughout the course of this episode. Oh, yes, (laughs) very much. But you have to do it properly, Ethan. You see, people will like mix, uh, you know, mix this stuff together in like similar amounts. An Amaretto Sour should have a splash, the barest splash, the barest hint of sour mix just to take a little bit of that edge off you still want that amaretto coming through brownest of the brown liqueurs what's that you want me to drink you but i'm in the middle of a podcast live stream that's okay we don't have to worry about driving home you're already home (laughs) sadly i have no amaretto on me Yes, so uh, the story there, we might as well tell stories. It's the 200th episode, why not? So the story there is, yes, I do indeed love uh, Amaretto very much. It's one of my favorite liqueurs. I don't tend to keep much alcohol around the house. I like to drink when other people are paying for the liquor. I don't tend to drink that much when I'm paying for the liquor. But as a way to keep myself in regular Amaretto without, like, plowing through the Amaretto at a faster level than human tolerance— What I would do when Jeff and I uh, still 
lived in the same town, like 10 minutes from each other, is I would buy the biggest bottle of uh, Di Sirono Amaretto that they regularly sell in stores. I would leave it at Jeffrey's house, where he had a more impressive uh, full-service bar. I was really the only one that drank it. I mean, I, I was fine with anyone drinking it, but I was the one that did most of the drinking of it. So I would just, whenever I was over and we were hanging out, I'd have an Amaretto Sour or two, and then when the Amaretto finally ran out, I would go buy another one and leave it over at Jeffrey's house, and uh, that was the cycle. I forget if the bottle is still down there or not. I haven't looked in a while. No, I think I think I polished off the last one, and obviously I haven't bought another one because I am uh, down in Georgia now. The horrors, the horrors. Can't just pop over for a quick Amaretto Sour anymore. No, no, you cannot. We are here to complete our story of video games that are held in our hands. But as it goes on, we will interspace this with you, the listener. Hello, listener. How are you doing today? I'm here in your ears to tell you about you. Specifically, all the stories you sent in about you. And they will be interspaced within this episode with cool little chimey noises. Like here. Hi guys, Carl from the Video Game Newsroom Time Machine here. Uh, first off, congratulations. This is a huge achievement. And uh, yeah, what does They Create Worlds mean to me? Well, to be honest with you, you guys are the gold standard. You guys are the ones that make serious inspections of the video game industry, its history, as in this format, in this podcast format, something respectable. You guys are the gold standard. And I don't see anybody else replacing you guys anytime soon. Uh, Lord knows I stand in your shadow. And uh, I was looking back at the notes in my very first episode, and Alex actually helped me there with a question about Bushnell getting kicked out of Atari. I still remember that, and I had it in my notes even. Uh, since then, I mean... Alex has become a dear, dear friend and collaborator, and uh, Jeffrey, I haven't forgotten, and at some point I will have enough time off between episodes to actually wean myself off of audacity, I promise. Uh, All I can say is thanks, guys, for all your hard work, the unbelievable, ungodly number of hours of entertainment I've had uh, listening to the show, and I look forward to so, so many more. Thanks. And thank you, Carl. As he said, we have become very good friends. Uh, I now am essentially the permanent co-host on his podcast, The Video Game Newsroom Time Machine, which does still use audacity as of the day of this recording, Jeffrey, on his end. Just saying, Carl, just saying. For shame, Doc. Hunting rabbits with an elephant gun. Yeah, if if you like what we do here, I definitely urge you to check out the video game uh, newsroom time machine as well. It's a very different format, but both Carl and I offer uh, insights into events unfolding in video game history one month at a time in jumps of uh, these days, 30 and 40 years, 1980s, 1990s. I'm flattered that we could uh, help inspire your own work in our own way and also look forward to many years on uh, your podcast as well. Either that or if I get hit hit with a truck, at least someone's getting Alex out there. (laughs) And here. Hey guys, after listening to your request for thoughts on the podcast, I love the nostalgia it brings me. The Intellivision episodes, for example, because I was eight when the war between Mattel and Atari began, and I vividly remember the George Plimpton commercials. 
I had a 2600 that I loved, but I was so envious of people with Intellivisions. Plus, I love the stories behind all these companies, games, and consoles. I'm friends with the granddaughter of Louis Nicastro, and I'm always telling her I want to write a book about her family's work in the field. I cannot express how much I look forward to each episode. Keep up the good work. D.W. Wow, that's uh, great. A connection with the, uh, the Nicastro family is also very interesting. At the time this was written, Louis Nicastro was still alive. He has since passed away. Sorry for your friend's loss there. The Nicastro family has certainly cast a long shadow over coin-operated entertainment through their many, many years of owning uh, Williams Electronics. And I certainly hope to keep providing you many more years of entertainment and episodes to look forward to. But what's important here is that we get all of them in here, and that's our plan. So as we tell you about the history of video games, specifically the handhelds, we are going to share your thoughts about the episode 200 and just, you know, pepper this entire episode with them. So if you're wondering why this thing is probably like three hours long or something, I don't know at this point. (laughs) I'm still at the recording episode part of this thing. That's probably why. 200 hours long, one for each episode. Let's go! 200 times 8 is... Oh, dear God. You didn't need to eat, sleep, or exist as a human person for the next year, right, Jeffrey? My spleen! My spleen! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, thank you to everyone who sent in those testimonials, by the way. It was all very touching both longtime friends and longtime listeners and relative strangers and new listeners sent in. And it's always nice to know that you're having some kind of impact when you do something like this. We do it for us. We don't do it for fame, fortune, riches. Believe me, we've got none of that. We do it for us because we have this desire to create, but it's always nice when you know someone is also listening and appreciating. Thank you so much, everyone, for being part of this 200th episode extravaganza. And, of course, thanks to the hearty souls that are still hanging around in our live stream on hour 518 of this (laughs) special uh, live stream handheld gaming extravaganza. You are heartier souls than I. Of course, this is the final of those three episodes that we are live streaming and just happened to, and I'm not even being sarcastic about that, correspond with our 200th episode. That would have been a great thing to plan out in advance. That's the kind of thing that conscientious, well-thought-out podcasts would definitely plan out in advance. We did not, but we got lucky that we could have our live stream correspond with the recording of episode 200. And here we are. We've been sharing some of those things off the episode on the live stream itself. Those thoughts and well wishes. Yes, some of those, maybe even all of them, but at least some of those testimonials will be heard twice because, of course, we'll make the live stream available too. So we've been doing them live here and then we actually added them into the episode in post. So if you happen to catch a part of the live stream for some reason before you catch this episode, or if you're in the live stream now, whatever, and you don't hear us read something that you know you sent in, it will definitely be in the episode. We've just been interspersing them in the live stream stream some uh, as well. But we're going to put them in the episode in post. Poor editing, Jeffrey. Poor, poor editing, Jeffrey. Hi, Jeffrey and Alex. Congratulations on hitting 200 episodes of They Create Worlds. 
Your podcast has become an absolute favorite of mine over the last few years. I'm confident I have listened to hundreds of hours at this point. So picking a favorite moment out of that much listening is kind of a tall order, but I'll try. I have most enjoyed stories of how famous designers, or companies, first started making games. That stuff is really inspiring. Episodes about Gunpei Yokoi, Eugene Jarvis, Koei, and Will Wright immediately spring to mind. Conversely, I've found the in-depth reporting of business strategies, corporate restructurings, and other capitalist shenanigans to be surprisingly entertaining as well. Perhaps with enough context, literally, anything can make for a good story. Of course, listening to Alex detail a thoroughly researched story from video game history is just oddly captivating. So relaxing, it's almost hypnotic. Anytime I travel by plane, you can be sure that the audio playing in my earbuds is this podcast. Truly, it is the only way to fly. Congratulations again, and thank you so much for doing the podcast. I look forward to 200 more episodes with all the business minutia you can manage to fit into it. Take care. Best wishes, Lucas. Well, thank you so much, Lucas. I'm obviously uh, partial to corporate shenanigans as well, uh, one of my favorite topics. And I think you're right, though. I think that just about any story is interesting if it's told the right way. And obviously, I can be no judge of whether my stories are interesting, though I'm very happy that you find them so and that so many of our listeners do. But I do think you're right that with enough context and with good enough framing, I think just about any story can be made interesting with the right hook. That's something I agree, and that's why I pushed to have Alex do this podcast. Right. These stories that you're hearing, they're a bit more structured than how they used to be because it used to just be Alex and me having dinner one night, and he's just telling me about his latest research, and I would ask questions. Just thought, you know, I'm obviously mesmerized, much like how you are, and find what Alex says to be captivating. I figured if I'm captivated, at least a few other people will probably enjoy this too. Without further ado, I suppose we should get this party started. Last episode of the year and first episode of the 200s. As is usual on They Create Worlds, we may have gotten a little overly ambitious, Jeffrey. Nah. In our younger and more innocent days, by which I mean like three hours ago, we blithely thought we were going to maybe cover a little bit, and I don't know why I'm blaming you for this and including you in the we, because it's really me. I thought, because I'm sure you always knew, Jeffrey always knows, but I thought that maybe we would cover all of handheld gaming. I knew we wouldn't spend too much time on things like the DS or the PSP or the Vita because we don't have a lot of context on it. But I figured that we would at least touch on it. Well, then the first two episodes happened. And wouldn't you know, Alex had a lot to say. Who knew? Here we are at live stream, eight hours and 34 minutes and 23 seconds. And still going. And still going. <laughs> Needed our uh, battery life for your game gears. <laughs> <laughs> that's what dinner was for. No, that's a good question. Crater Gaming, are we going to consider the smartphone a handheld video game console? 
not for purposes of this podcast. I mean, clearly, mobile gaming is the successor to handheld gaming, you know, what was traditionally called handheld gaming. Clearly, it is what handheld gaming is today. But in terms of historical product categories, you know, considering mobile gaming something different from handheld gaming, just as kind of a product category in every practical way, smartphone gaming certainly is handheld gaming. Mobile gaming is something that we'll probably cover one of these days. It's a weird topic, both because still a lot of it's so new, but also because a lot of it is so ephemeral, so fleeting. Obviously, there are a few things that have specific games have stood the test of time and a few specific genres you can pull out of that. It's not that you can't pull a narrative out of there. Yeah, Engage really does blur the line. That is absolutely for sure. So it's kind of a difficult subject to wrap head around a little bit, though as more time passes, it'll become easier and easier. We're still kind of too close to a lot of it. Definitely a worthy topic. Definitely a lot of history there. But for the purposes of these handheld gaming episodes, we're not going there other than vague mentions of how traditional handheld gaming and mobile gaming start to come into conflict with each other. And of course, it is mobile gaming that ultimately wins that little scuffle. We're not going to get as far as we thought in our second episode. For those who don't remember, we basically covered the lineage from the microvision from Jay Smith and Milton Bradley through to the Game & Watch, through to the Game Boy. And we got the Game Boy designed and not quite yet launched. Hi, Jeffrey and Alex. I've enjoyed the podcast for years now, and I'm very excited for you guys to hit the milestone of 200 episodes. It's a short story, but here's one of my favorite memories about the podcast. Last fall, my friend Rob and I drove from Minnesota to Chicago, Illinois, to go see the Final Fantasy Distant Worlds concert. Great concert, by the way. I've I've been as well in Atlanta. Given it was about an eight-hour drive each way, we had plenty of time for podcasts. Rob and I have been playing video games together since we were six years old, so video games have always been a big keystone to our friendship. Knowing this, I thought I'd recommend we give They Create Worlds a listen for one of our road trip podcasts since he hadn't yet heard of it. Particularly given that we're on our way to a Final Fantasy concert, I thought episode 157, Final Fantasy's Tale, would be a good choice. I agree. It was a great experience to share a podcast that I've loved for years with a friend, and having it be so topically relevant to what we were doing was icing on the cake. Thanks for all the years of video game history, and I hope that there are still many more in the future. P.S. Distant Worlds is an incredible concert experience, and if you ever have the chance to go, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Chris. Yeah, as I said, I saw it in Atlanta, and I believe years ago you saw it in Chicago yourself, didn't you, Jeffrey? I did. I went up north and joined a few other friends to see it live. One of the first ones, I believe. Uematsu was actually there conducting the one you went to, wasn't he? He might have been. I know there was a Japanese translator there, so I am guessing so, but I am not 100% sure. The people who know, I would have to message. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, when I saw it, he definitely didn't. I just saw it on its uh, most recent time through here. But a lot of fun. We're both uh, big Final Fantasy fans going way back, and I'm a music person. I mean, I did choir and and band all through school and continued to sing uh, long after leaving school as well. The music of Final Fantasy has always been uh, special to me. Final Fantasy VI was uh, the the first OST I ever owned, and I still don't own many. I'm not a collector of OSTs, but 
I had to get Final Fantasy VI's OST because that music just blew me away. Even as a junior high student, it's like, oh my gosh, there's an opera. I mean, it was incredible. And of course, uh, through Final Fantasy, I actually met my wife. It all comes around. Well, absolutely. And video games have, have been central to Jeffrey and mine's friendship as well, which goes all the way back to the third grade. We didn't quite meet through video games, but definitely a lot of our bonding was through video games. And he introduced me to SimCity and Civilization. I introduced him to Dragon Quest and JRPGs. So, I mean, we've garnered a lot of a lot of enjoyment about uh, through the games uh, we've introduced to each other. So that's that's great that you have a friend like that as well. We're going to be taking up this story in 1989 when the Game Boy is about to hit the scene and its first real competitor has also announced that it will be coming out. You know, I don't think there was a lot of drive really for there to be handheld games again through most of this period. I mean, I don't think there was much appetite. Sega, certainly. I don't think was ever interested. Obviously, we're going to be talking about Game Gear, but the interviews we have make it clear that it was entirely a response to the other systems coming out. It wasn't something that they were already planning to do until everybody else was doing it. I don't think it was really on Atari's radar either. Obviously, Atari's about to have a system come out. Everyone ended up in handheld games, but I don't think most of them meant to get back into handheld games. Nintendo clearly did, but that's only because of that game and watch lineage and having an R&D department that was kind of sidelined as the company moved to consoles and wanted a way to get back into the business. I mean, as we talked about in just last episode, the bloody thing was almost canceled. That's how little most of Nintendo cared about it. Clearly, there was still a market for the simpler kind of electronic handheld games. I mean, Tiger was doing fantastic business, and Konami was doing business in that area as well. But the idea that you really needed a portable system that had something vaguely resembling the power of a home console, that was not on most people's radar, I don't think. But on the other hand, this was a period of time when miniaturization was hitting the mainstream of computing in a big way, or the promise of miniaturization. You did have the first PDAs coming out. You had had some very small computers even in the early to mid-1980s, particularly coming out of uh, Japan from companies like Sharp and Casio. But that was kind of a little too soon, I think, and the technology wasn't quite there yet. By the latter part of the decade, you're starting to get enough sophistication in the screen technology, and you've gotten enough miniaturization in the guts and the innards and the chips and whatnot, that this was something that was starting to excite some people in the computer establishment. And so you were starting to get those personal data assistants. You were starting to get projects at some computer companies to create these smaller computers. Atari had one of these under development, the uh, Atari portfolio. Perhaps most famously of all, Apple Computer had their long gestating Newton project. I remember the Newton. (laughs) I remember it failing. Oh, Lord. Yes, and it was in development for so, so very long. The reason I bring all of this up is before we turn back to the Game Boy's launch, we do want to introduce the first real competitor that was going to go head-to-head with Game Boy. 
That, of course, was the Atari Lynx. While I don't know this for certain, I'm fairly comfortable in saying that it was inspired by this new wave of interest in small personal computers, PDAs, and that kind of thing. The Lynx was the brainchild of hardware engineer David Needle and software engineer R.J. Michael. Both of these individuals have relatively fascinating histories. Dave Needle has a particularly fascinating history trying to make his own arcade games, like, all by himself in the Bay Area back during the Golden Age of Games, then ending up at Amiga Corporation, where he was one of the uh, hardware engineers on the Lorraine project, which of course became the Amiga computer. R.J. Michael joined the Amiga project as a software guy and was involved in writing some of the OS and also created the uh, famous bouncing ball demo that they used at CES to show off the audiovisual capabilities of the Amiga computer. Once Commodore got involved, this isn't an Amiga episode, so we're not going to go into all of those corporate shenanigans because they are the most shenanigany shenanigans. Once Commodore got involved, they were both pretty disillusioned pretty quick. Needle quit first and went to Apple. Michael stayed on a little bit longer until he had a meeting with former Amiga CEO David Morse, basically said, you know, what are you still doing there when you could probably make so much more money as an independent uh, software developer consultant? And Michael was like, yeah, you're right. So he quit and did just that. He offered up his services to individuals and companies that were interested in making Amiga software and helped them because he was so intimately familiar with that programming environment, helped them get their projects over the finish line. As I said, Dave Needle moved on to Apple. And the thing that I find interesting here, and this was 1987, roughly around then, just to place this in context, in one of the few interviews that he gave, he has sadly since passed, he mentioned that while he was at Apple, the work that he was doing was on the hardware that eventually became the Newton. Now, when he was working on it, it wasn't the Newton project. That didn't come along until a little later. But basically, when the Newton project started a little later, the engineers repurposed the work that Needle and Needle's team was doing on this other portable computer project into the Newton project. I have to imagine that that must have fired his interest in portable computing hardware. We don't have an exact story. Unfortunately, two of the three participants are dead now. David Morrison and David Needle. R.J. Michael, even though he's given many interviews, hasn't really spoken to this. We don't know exactly why a portable system, why in 1987, 88, they decided that that was the thing to do. What we do know is that they got together for lunch at a favorite Mexican restaurant hangout. Michael and Morse were both kind of just doing their own thing. Needle was at Apple, but wasn't necessarily wedded to it. And they were just kind of reminiscing about the good old days and thought it would be kind of great to work together again. So right there, Needle and Michael sketched out on a napkin the basics for a portable video game system, just because they thought it would be a cool thing to do together. I got to imagine that working on the stuff he was working on at Apple had to be an influence there. It's also just possible they saw that as a niche that nobody had done yet. 
The Game Boy hasn't been announced, even though it's in development by this time. Nobody knows about it. It could be that it was just an interesting niche, but I imagine that that Apple experience had to have played a role. I just can't 100% prove it. Yes, that's correct. The 3DO started the same way. You know, they, they had kind of become simpatico with each other at Amiga, so they stayed in touch. Needle and Michael found Morse to be a very sound entrepreneur, and Morse found them to be a very talented engineering team, and so they were kind of always looking for opportunities to work together. So they made a decision right then and there that Michael and Needle would build this thing, and Morse would find a company that could make it for them, because they really weren't going to be able to raise the money to do this as a startup. Hi, Jeff and Alex. I'm a casual gaming history fan, and over COVID lockdown, I read through a few gaming-related books. I heard about They Create World through the Video Game History Hour podcast, after which I purchased Alex's first book and loved every second of it, and then starting in January of this year, I started on episode one of They Create Worlds podcast, and have been listening through every single episode during my commute this year. If you've been listening from episode one, my apologies for the quality back then. <laughs> Citing apologies, even. There's that episode, too. That one's just the entertaining outlier. <laughs> There was so much content that I just caught up to the current shows in late August. A longtime goal of mine was to collect and play through every North American NES release on original hardware without cheats. That is quite the challenge. Mm -hmm. I succeeded in this goal in 2021 and have been working hard on writing my own book since then about the North American NES library in its entirety with a specialized focus on difficulty. During my playing time and research for the book, the They Create World podcast has been both a big influence as well as a great source to deepen my understanding of the NES library specifically, although I do find many of the other subjects you cover just as fascinating. I used to joke with my friends about games on the system that we had never encountered while growing up. Who was buying Silent Service? Wizardry, or Raid on Bungling Bay back in the day. Shout out to the deck gun! <laughs> Can't go wrong with the deck gun. Through a combination of playing through these kinds of games from start to finish, as well as learning about their place in gaming history and their creators through you guys, I have such a newfound fondness and understanding for many games I previously looked down on or wrote off completely. Your podcast has really enriched my already deep appreciation for the NES and helped me to better understand the games I've spent so much time learning about and playing. And in addition to that, while working on my own book and hearing about all the amazing people Alex has been able to speak to with over the years, he inspired me to expand my scope of my book to do the same. I reached out to people that I never would have thought would have taken time out of their day to speak with me to talk to them about NES games and difficulty around the era of gaming that would often pleasantly surprised about how open and insightful and enthusiastic and candid they all were. 
So I think you guys have helped lead me in a direction that will make my book far better than it would have been had I not been listening and soaking up all these wonderful stories about all these interesting people throughout gaming over the past several decades. Please keep up the amazing work so that you guys can continue to inspire more authors, researchers, podcasters, and whoever else you touch with your incredibly thorough work. I am eagerly anticipating They Create Worlds Volume 2, but in the interim, I am happy to have the podcast to fill in the void and enlighten me during my solitary drives. Kelsey. Well, thank you, Kelsey, and I must say I am eagerly awaiting your book as well, uh, because that sounds absolutely wonderful. The thing that really touches me about this one is the fact that we are having an impact on people that also want to do this history and also want to capture some of these stories before they go away. I mean, I still remember the epiphany I had when I realized that I could contact people and they would talk to me all the way back in 2008, 2009-ish. And my burning desire from that time on to collect as many of these stories as I can while these pioneers are still with us. And of course, I can't do it all alone. Obviously, no one can. So I am so inspired uh, that you are taking the time as well, Kelsey, uh, to capture some of these stories around these uh, NES games. So thank you, seriously. And really, like Alex said, Everyone likes to talk about themselves, so if you just reach out to anyone and come at them from a humble position of, hey, I really like your work, I'm working on this project, please, can I get your insights and clarifications on these questions, whether I record you, we talk for an hour or two, I give you a list of questions, what can we do? Many people out there love, love, love to talk about themselves. Really just giving them a respectful platform to do so on, you're going to see a lot of people flock into your door. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's always that strange oddball that'll just ghost you or, or may even reject you, but those are very few and far between. And so, you know, you, you persevere through those and you just you capture all the ones you can. That's wonderful. The company that he found was a company that at this moment was at a bit of a crossroads, which was the computer game company Epix. Don't think we've done an Epix episode yet. We did. We have Epic and not Epic, not Epic. We did. Okay, we did. I think we have two on both of them, one on each of them. Well, yeah, we did. Epic, not Epics is, is about Epic Mega Games. Yes, we have. I think, it, you know, so the last time we did a live stream, I made up an accolade episode that didn't exist. <laughs> uh, and this time on the live stream... You forget one of our children. I tried to uh, deny the existence of an epics episode that does exist. I don't listen to these things. I just ramble and then Jeff does something on his computer and then it's like out in the world. I don't know how this works. Magic, obviously. So, yeah, we talked about epics before. If I could do the math, I would have bought myself a Jaguar back in 1993, but I did not. So we don't have to belabor the point, but Epix was a uh, computer software company, computer game company, that had had a lot of success with action games on the Commodore 64 at a time in the mid-1980s after the crash when, in general, companies were not having much success with action games on computers. By 1986-87, they were at a bit of a crossroads because their bread and butter was the Commodore 64. The Commodore 64 was starting to give way to the Nintendo Entertainment System. 
Epix was not interested in getting on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Some of their employees were, but management was not. Michael Katz, the CEO since 1983, had just left to join Jack over at Atari. So the company was kind of ambling along. The CFO of the company took over as the CEO, Gil Freeman, just long enough to kind of keep the lights on. He was never, I don't think, planning to do it long term. They realized that they needed to grow and diversify, or they were at risk of being left behind. So I don't know exactly how Dave Morse connected with them, other than the fact that I'm sure he was in some of the same circles. Ethan says, except Michael Katz claims he evaluated it. Yes, and I am positive that that is not so, because the timing does not work in any way. Memory's a fickle thing. Michael Katz also says that Donkey Kong was exclusive on the uh, ColecoVision in 1982, that the other versions didn't come out until 1983, and that is provably, demonstrably uh, incorrect as well. Mike's a very straight shooter. I have the utmost respect for him. But, you know, 40-year-old memories, what you gonna do? Somehow, Dave Morse got in touch with them, joined the board of directors, and then convinced them to make him CEO. And his plan all along was to create a base of operations for Needle and Michael to do their work on uh, what they were calling the Handy Game. Epics, I mean, he couldn't rule by fiat. Uh, they had a board. But the board was interested in what he was saying. The company had been moderately successful, and one thing that set Epix apart from most of the other computer game companies at the time is they had a large internal development team. They were one of the first computer game companies that really did team-based development with lots of programmers and artists and designers working together. So I'm sure they thought to themselves, we have the software expertise. We definitely have the people that can crank out games for this thing. Needle and Michael have the expertise to build this thing, get a little venture capital together in order to manufacture, and we have something that's going to break us free of this Commodore 64 platform whose days are numbered. In hindsight, a decision of pure folly, not to spoil the ending, but... They went ahead and did that, and Needle and Michael were hired into Epics, and they were put off in a separate super-secret locked room and started work on their handy game. The Lynx is a truly phenomenal feat of engineering in a lot of ways. Dave Needle was a very good hardware guy, and unlike Nintendo— who was just trying to keep the cost uh, to a certain level, which uh, Yamauchi was always sensitive to, they wanted to make about the best thing they could. Now, they weren't entirely ignoring cost, because at first they were thinking that they would do a 16-bit processor like a Motorola 68000, and they did quickly come to the conclusion that that was going to be a non-starter. So they went with a later version of the 6502 as their core CPU, because as far as 8-bit CPUs go, it's, it's particularly efficient. They went with a 6502 variant for their processor, but they were absolutely positively going to do a color LCD screen. Full color system. And not only were they going to do a color LCD screen, they were also going to do the kind of stuff you didn't see in consoles until mode 7, stretching and rotating of sprites. 
They even put in a very, very primitive 3D rendering mode. R.J. Michael himself says it was absolutely terrible and nobody used it because it was terrible. But they were really pulling out all the stops graphically, trying to incorporate as many interesting and wonderful features as they possibly could. They also wanted to have a fairly large screen. 160 by 102 was the resolution. And they wanted to have a decent amount of colors. They ended up going with the same amount of colors that the Amiga had, 4096. Had four-channel sound, very good sound for a system of this type. And uh, they also stuck uh, 64 kilobytes of RAM in there, which is also pretty impressive. This was a fairly robust system. Of course, that robustness came at a price, both literally and figuratively. The Game Boy, which is not quite out yet, in all of its black-and-white, hard-to-read screen glory, would be retailing for about 90 bucks. Atari Lynx would need to retail for 180 bucks. Hmm. And, of course, because it was a color LCD screen, it required a backlight, because you cannot see a color LCD screen without a backlight. It just really doesn't work. It drained batteries like crazy. They were firm in their mission to create the most incredible handheld gaming experience that they possibly could. So here we are. Hi, guys. I've been a long-time listener of the podcast going back to about 2017 and been an avid fan ever since. Every time a new episode drops, I'm right there, with an exception I'll come to shortly. So I just wanted to say a massive, big Jeffrey's video game emporium-sized thank you. You guys have been with me through some tough times over the last few years and have always made me smile and learn something interesting about this industry we love so much. So thank you for that. Anyway, I'd like to share some of my memories of the podcast for episode 200. Feel free to include as much or as little of this as you like, or none at all. Well, you know us, we're all about ridiculous lengths and epic tangents, so uh, we're including all of it. I've been a professional game programmer in the industry for about 15 years. While doing client work on the recent Disney game for Switch, I needed to travel up and down the UK once, twice a month to visit their office. The drive is about five hours each way, and in order to fill the time, I would purposely download, but not listen to, episodes of the podcast and queue them up to binge listen while away from home. It was hard not jumping in after seeing the title, but I'd save them for myself in a playlist on my phone. I remember listening to the Computer Space episode while eating breakfast at a cheap hotel, the British 8-bits while driving down the country on a sunny Sunday afternoon, the Nintendo History 3-parter on a cold winter's morning heading into the office, and the computer price wars on a dark motorway driving home at 10 p.m. For these memories and many more over the last few years, you guys kept me company for many a mile, and both enlightened and entertained at the same time, not to mention kept me sane. You made an otherwise dismal journey into something to look forward to, literally. But thankfully now, since that project has ended, I'm there day and date on the new episodes and still loving it. Keep up the great work, you guys have a very special mix of informative, entertaining, funny, and personable, and you're doing an amazing job. Here's to another 200 tangent-filled episodes. Congratulations. Dan. 
Gosh, Dan, thank you. Uh, I know we have a few people from the industry uh, that listen to us, uh, and I'm sure many more that haven't reached out for us. That's always heartening to know that people in the industry are, are interested in it, too, because we're striving to capture these stories in, in a way that's truthful to what happened. Now, obviously, truth is a slippery thing, and people can have different viewpoints, and people misremember, and there's conflicting stories. So obviously, we're not looking to be the one single truth. But we do hope that we're at least capturing some of these companies and some of these individuals and, and some of this wonderful industry. So it's it's always heartening when we hear from someone within the industry that has been touched by the podcast, because that's that's very meaningful to me personally. And certainly we do have long episodes, so there's definitely a theme of people that have to do uh, intensive travel using our podcast to pass the hours, and uh, I think that's great as well. It's nice to know that anyone out there appreciates the amount of effort that you put into anything you put out there into the world. So much editing that goes into every episode, checking up on show notes, trying to come up with things, managing your own life, and then trying to get everything on time, out the door, twice a month, every month. How did I do this for so many years with no backup? <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, hey, it's not just going into the void. It's keeping you company. It's keeping others company. It's entertaining you. It brings you joy. And by bringing you joy, it brings me joy. It makes it all worthwhile. Well said. The other problem is, turns out they really can't do it all themselves. They're still going to need someone to manufacture. They do go and raise a lot of money. Dave Morse raises a lot of venture capital. Venture capitalist by the name of Joe Horowitz joins the board, representing his venture firm, which puts a lot of money in to fund the development of this thing. But they're going to need a manufacturing partner, one of the existing companies. So, of course, the logical destination is Nintendo. Nintendo being, by far, the biggest powerhouse. And they try multiple times to get Nintendo interested in this thing. They go to Nintendo of America. They can't get the time of day. They make inquiries at Nintendo of Japan, and with Nintendo and Japan's engineers, can't get the time of day. Of course, they're hard at work on the Game Boy. They don't care about what anyone else is doing. Finally. Joe Horowitz leads the charge, and he and Dave Morse and Dave Needle get on a plane, fly to Japan, to Kyoto. With the aid of Hank Rogers, they get an audience with Yamauchi, because Hank Rogers of Tetris fame is one of the few people outside the company that have Yamauchi's ear, built that relationship through playing Go with him, go in and pitch the idea directly to Yamauchi. Yamauchi politely listens, then says something to somebody who comes back with a little box. No idea if they were wearing a lab coat or not. Remove the lid on the box to reveal to the assembled the Game Boy. According to Needle, this is the first time anyone outside the company had ever seen it, so that makes me wonder if this was Hank Rogers' first time ever seeing the Game Boy as well. They knew they had no chance with them. They also approached. Sega. The interesting thing is that according to Dave Needle, in an interview that he gave, they gave Sega all of their schematic information as part of trying to get them interested in doing the manufacturing for them. Dave Needle says that later on, flash forward a couple of years, he was brought in as a consultant to help get the Game Gear finished 
just to help their engineering staff with some problems that they were having. And he was incredibly shocked at how similar it seemed to the Lynx, and also thought that a lot of the problems they were having were weak engineering problems based on the fact that they didn't really understand the hardware. Of course, who did the screen for the Lynx, the LCD screen? I haven't told you yet, but I'll take guesses. Citizen? It was Citizen. That is correct. They also did the screen for the Lynx. Again, I am not saying that Sega took from Needle either. I mean, certainly the systems use different processors, though I think that he's comparing the displays and how the displays work as opposed to the entire hardware configuration. But I find it interesting that both Nintendo and Epic's engineers that were working on the other two handhelds of the time both think that Sega or Citizen, or both, stole from their designs. We do know that Game Gear was a reactionary product. We're going to get to Game Gear a little bit later in the episode. We do know it was a reactionary product, as in they were not starting work on it before Game Boy and Lynx were being worked on. We also know they got it done pretty quickly. So you have to wonder if they did indeed take some shortcuts. I have no proof, but I just think it's very interesting that two different engineers of handheld game products at two completely different companies both think that that Game Gear looks an awful lot like the work that they were doing. Who knows? But that doesn't work out either, so they finally turn to the red-headed stepchild of the late 1980s video game industry. Jack Commodore's secret agent's very own company, the Atari Corporation. My name is Leandro, 44 years old, and I am from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Moto Historia podcast, History Mode, Argentine podcast, I found five years ago, suddenly, as you described during episode 152, posted a video with Alex Smith like one year ago, and I said, what? There is a podcast with such amazing information going around? So in 2022, when I knew you existed, I've started to play all of your episodes over Spotify. After one year, and by the anniversary months of TCW, I finished listening to all your episodes. I was able to buy your book in Spain and send it to Argentina as well. Since I have my sister living in Madrid. And I'm almost done with the book as well. I feel that you are now like good old friends, family, everything for me. You are a big companion every time you share your experiences and data with us. Your work is just amazing. So many hours listening to you guys, taking notes, trying to catch up on all the data that Alex throws during every podcast. It's just amazing for me to understand the history of video games in this way. For sure, today we cannot measure the importance of what your great work is achieving, but in some decades, this will be the foundation stone to understand how everything started. Two weeks ago, I was able to see Jeffrey live editing an episode on Twitch, and it was amazing to see the man behind the voice. Hope someday you can come down to Argentina. It's cheap for you guys. Come on! And have a good barbecue and to talk about games and the history of video games in Latin America with Guillermo Crespi. 
and more people. I'm sure you guys can fill a theater talking about history of video games. Here, MSX, Commodore, Atari, and Sinclair were strong when I was a child in the mid-80s. So the episodes about European microcomputers was the best episode for myself, as it reminded me of my childhood. I still have a Toshiba MSX-1 at my mother's home somewhere around there. Here in Argentina, you are very well known. I also have friends in Chile who know about you. So I hope someday you can fly here and have some excellent wine and eat some Argentinian meat. Keep up the good work, Leonardo. Well, you know, you you had me at uh, wine, meat, and uh, video games, Leandro. I would certainly can't make any promises, but I would love to come down someday. I have to say, Guillermo, Carl, taught me how uh, how you pronounce that in Argentina with the, the Ger on those double L's. Guillermo, that was one of the most fun times I had being on someone else's podcast. He's very astute. I love the work he's doing down there. I'm glad not just that you found us through him, but I'm glad you found him because he is certainly one of those voices worth listening to on this whole topic as well. So thank you very much for all the kind words. And if I ever come down to Argentina, you will be my first call. I remember when you did pop into the chat when I was editing that one time and you were so excited to uh, catch me. Yeah, I don't always stream, but when I do, when I plan to like sit down for multiple hours and edit, sometimes I will do that. It's a lot of work. Always is. Atari likes the idea. They've been trying to establish themselves in the video game space. They're trying to carve out a place. They haven't had a lot of success. This seems like a unique area that they can move into. They're also definitely interested in the portable hardware, because as I said, they were working on the portfolio as a computer project, which was one of these small computer projects. So Atari agrees to take this on. Epics is going to do the development. Epics is going to provide the software. Atari is going to do the manufacturing and the selling of it under their brand. Well, that would be great, except for a couple of things. First, Epics ain't looking so good, because it turns out developing a whole new hardware system is expensive. And you definitely don't want to be developing an all-new hardware system at the same time as your core market for your product, to wit, the Commodore 64, is completely falling apart as a viable, economically viable platform. Some sort of computer price wars are going on or something. Well, this is after the computer price wars. This is because of the NES. Because the niche that the Commodore 64 really had amongst the home computer platforms is it was a great sprite-moving machine. The NES basically filled the same niche that it did and was an easy-to-understand video game system that had Mario on it. At this point, it's the NES that is destroying the Commodore 64 games market. So they are having a cash crunch, and we all know who salivates when he gets a hint of a cash crunch. Jack Trammell. During this period of time, Sam Trammell is running the day-to-day of the company as the president, but Jack is still very, very much involved, very, very much engaged. Jack has always been one that has considered paying his suppliers more of a courtesy than an obligation. The way the deal worked 
is that they were doing payments based on milestones, very standard development type contract. However, in the contract, Atari had the right to withhold payment until bugs were addressed that they identified. So what they would do, according to Dave Needle, and this is totally believable because this is classic Jack behavior, I do believe Dave Needle on this point, what Atari would do was wait until the day before the deadline, the milestone deadline, to submit their bug reports. And then when Epics couldn't get the bugs taken care of in time, they would withhold payment according to the terms of the contract. You are technically correct. The best kind of correct. Yes. When Jack says business is war, he means it. Epics just could not continue functioning with this because they're not getting the revenue streams they need from anywhere else. So finally, they are squeezed so much that they are forced to get out from under Jack's thumb. They are forced to sell the entire project to Atari. They still plan to provide software for the system, but the project is being absorbed into Atari. Needle and Michael are offered jobs at Atari. I believe, even though I was not there, their response was, aw, hell nah, and they left to go dream up the 3DO, and no doubt lived happily ever after. Atari put the finishing touches on the handy game, which they renamed The Lynx. The reason for that is one of the features, and we didn't talk about this with the Game Boy either, but one thing that was used as a way to lure people in is the idea that you could play portable games with your friends by using a cable to link systems together. The Game Boy allowed two Game Boys to link together. They also later put out a four-person adapter that very few games supported, but by default you could only do two. The Lynx, because Needle was all about doing all the crazy things that he could, could link way more together. It allowed up to really eight players. I think they may have advertised like 16, but in practical reality, if you tried to do that, it didn't work very well. Eight was really the practical amount. But you could daisy chain them together with link cables. So because of the linking aspect, which Atari decided they wanted to highlight, they decided to name it the links spelled like the animal. Sega 16 says Needle and Michael later went and bid against Atari on Lynx game dev kits just to raise the price and screw Atari when Epics went under. That's fun. I did not know about that. That is an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of hard feelings all around there. So the Lynx came into Atari internally. I was walking back to work yesterday, and I was thinking about Sega's 3Ks problem that was talked about on the two-parter Sega and CSK. I couldn't remember what the 3Ks were. I went to Google and searched for Sega Arcade 3K problem. I got zero results. That is the value of the They Create Worlds podcast. The history that's being recorded on the podcast simply doesn't exist anywhere else. You can find dozens, if not hundreds, of places that will tell you the same video game fun facts over and over again. Nowhere else will actually look at the full industry-wide story like you guys do. Thanks for the podcast and all the work that goes into recording, producing, and editing. Tom. P.S. I found you guys through the Video Game History Hour. They deserve a special mention for also being a different breed of video game history content creator and preserver. 
Also, I have bought the book. I haven't gotten to reading it yet, but it's on the to-do list. I'll certainly be buying the next one, too. Thank you so much for that support as well. Uh, that means a lot. And yes, definitely a shout-out to the Video Game History Hour. Uh, you're not the only one, not even the only one that sent in a testimonial that uh, discovered me through their podcast. And uh, the work that uh, Frank is doing there uh, for game preservation is is certainly inspiring to me as well. There's There's a growing number of us that are paying more and more attention to this, and I think we're slowly changing uh, this problem that you've mentioned uh, about only being able to see the same video game fun facts over and over again. Um, Ethan Johnson, uh, Kate Willard at Critical Kate, uh, Norm, uh, the video game historian, uh, and a few others are really... Uh, you know, delving deep into this stuff. Uh, Kevin Bunch, a good friend at the Atari Archive. There's so many I could call out, so apologies to anyone who I didn't, but um, I'm glad that our work is getting noticed because I-, I know that even 50 years from now, like a lot of what we think is true now will be superseded. I've said this on the show before, but I think this is the first time, and I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about all these other creators too, because it's not just about me. I think this truly is the first time that we're really trying to understand what happened to the full extent that we are able to with the sources that are available, getting into uh, archives, getting into court cases, interviewing people that have never been talked to before. And I think that work is very important, though, of course, I am biased. I'm glad, Tom, that you have appreciated it as well. I think the greatest work that everyone who's contributing is getting something down Mm -hmm. at the very least getting the stories of the people that are doing it while they're still alive. What would people give to have a real interview from a historical perspective where a lot of board games came from other entertainments came from Mm -hmm. that were 50, a hundred, 200 years ago, historical figures. Yeah, we have some correspondence, but having someone to just sit down and do a formal interview where like, hey, help give me a better understanding of what you are thinking at this moment. It may or may not be accurate, but hearing it in their own words, that's immensely valuable. And the few times that we actually have that from history is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Epix was planning to provide software, and of course, many of the early games were games developed by Epix, but Epix is bankrupt before the end of 1989. That's a real problem. Because one thing that is very true time and time again with Jack Trammell is that he does not care about software. It doesn't interest him. He doesn't want anything to do with it. It's this dirty, grubby little thing that he has to tolerate. He is a hardware man. He came up hawking uh, first typewriters and then calculators. He is a hardware man through and through. They do open a new uh, development division in Lombard, Illinois, basically because they had been contracting with a guy named Larry Siegel, who already had a company there. They wanted to bring Siegel in-house, and Siegel didn't want to move, so they were like, fine, we'll move our entertainment, (laughs) electronic entertainment division out to where you are and headquarter it there. The system would not be well-supported with games. Now, the first wave of games, the ones created by Epix, who were very good at making action games. There were some very good games in that first round. 
A lot of people very fondly remember the puzzle game Chips Challenge, for instance, and the airplane game Blue Lightning was also quite well done. Of course, they did have some Atari licenses that they could bring over. There was a Gauntlet game, for instance. Clax showed up on there. Also, a port of California Games, which was still relatively new at that time, came out a couple years before and was very popular. There was some good initial software, but then software kind of dropped off. More on that in a moment, however. Hello. I just recently found your podcast, so I don't have a memory, but I'm really enjoying going through your episodes now. In my heart, I'm a gamer, so it's been a pleasure learning more about how games are made and the people behind them. Thanks. Jason. Thank you, Jason, for taking the time, even though you're such a new listener. The podcast has been growing. We're never going to be mainstream. We we deep dive too much. We tangent too much. But there definitely does seem to be an appetite, and, and the podcast is growing. Won't share the, the specific numbers, but let's just say that the—I mean, you can see the downloads per episode mostly on our podcast page. But let's just say over the past three or four years, the graph has been going up at basically a 45-degree angle. We're so happy you discovered us, Jason. We're so glad you're enjoying. Your comment is a perfect stand-in for all of the people that are continuing to discover us and continuing to enjoy uh, the the in-depth work that's going on here. So thank you. Because first we have to get back to the good folks at Nintendo, who in January of 1989 finally announced their Game Boy to the world. More specifically, Japan, because it's going to come out in Japan first. Reaction is somewhat muted, but when it goes on sale in April, it is pretty much an immediate sellout. They shipped 300,000 units initially, and they were gone within a week. It really became a new obsession, particularly for school children. I think the reason for this is there was kind of a trend, and it accelerated in coming decades as well. One of the reasons that handhelds have historically always done so well in Japan and why mobile gaming became sophisticated in Japan way sooner than it became sophisticated in the rest of the world is that there were increasing pressures on time for school-aged children. They went to school six days a week, and then more and more, they were going to cram school on the weekend in order to prepare for the dreaded graduation exams at the end of senior year. So there was a lot of schooling, and oftentimes they didn't even necessarily live that close to their school if they were in Tokyo or whatever. You were often taking the train to get to school. You're often taking the train to go to cram school on the weekends. Free time was becoming more and more of a premium. This really accelerates even later, but even in 1989, this is a little true. Gaming became more and more something that you kind of had to savor in precious moments where you could sneak a little session in. So the Game Boy was perfect for this. You could take it with you on the train. You could take it with you to school. You could play for five minutes before class. There are reports in the newspapers at the time that Gorge quotes from that are saying that it's becoming, even as early as 1989-1990, once it's first released, it's becoming very common for students to be like, okay, we have five minutes before our next class, time to play a little bit. 
it turns out that the games that can support that kind of lifestyle become the very popular games, especially in the beginning. So yeah, there was Super Mario Land, which was the original game bundled with it. The system didn't do action games that well, really, because the screen still had problems. One of the problems with the way that LCD screens were powered back in the day that we talked about a little bit last episode in the context of the microvision, where you're turning on and off parts of the screen, is that if you're moving fast through something, you get a lot of blur effects because you have parts of the screen that are still turning off while you're moving on to the next part of the screen with your character. So you get a lot of blur on the early Game Boys with fast action games. You also do have something of a problem viewing the screen still. It's not always easy to view that screen. So action games aren't really the answer. It turns out that the puzzle games are really what's going to go great guns. Like Tetris, obviously. We're not going to tell the Tetris story here because we've already done that. So it turns out the puzzle games are the better games for the system, and those are also games that are much easier to play in a quick session here, a quick session there. So Tetris, of course, which we're not going to go into since uh, we've covered that story uh, pretty thoroughly in one of our very early episodes, one that still holds up for sure. You know, Tetris was huge on it. Dr. Mario was huge on it. Alleyway did good business on it. In fact, of the launch titles... The very early launch titles, which remember Tetris wasn't even there yet, Alleyway was considered uh, the favorite, which was just Breakout, you know, under a different name. So these kind of games that gave the quick gaming hits and which you could sit down and do puzzles and whatnot, these are the games that started to have an impact. And it really carved out a niche there with young people who just had overwhelming lives and couldn't necessarily game as much at home as they used to, now had an outlet to game when they were on the go, on the train at school, at cram school, etc. It's an immediate, immediate success. By August, four months after release, they'd already sold a million units. 720,000 of those were in Japan. 280,000 were in the United States, where it had only launched at the end of July. Of course, it was bundled with Tetris in the United States. After four months, it had sold 720,000 units in Japan. By Christmas, that number had doubled, 1.5 million Game Boys. There were immense shortages. The company kept trying to ramp up production, 400,000 a month, 500,000 a month, 600,000 a month. For the first time, Nintendo offshored during this period and opened factories in China to manufacture Game Boys. The first time they had deigned to manufacture outside of Japan, and they could not keep up. You saw some of the exact same things that you saw when the Famicom boom was at its height. We talked about this some in our family computer episodes, but you had the bundling situation where stores forced you, if you wanted a Game Boy, to buy an assortment of other software as the price of entry to uh, get the system. You know, you buy these five games and you can also buy a Game Boy. It was technically illegal, but. It could be awfully hard to catch the people that were doing this. This has been a problem with the Famicom. It was a problem again with the Game Boy. A panegyric to They Create Worlds. Greetings, They Create Worlds. It's me, Quarter Past, the self-proclaimed secretary-treasurer of the They Create Worlds fan club. I didn't know we had a fan club. Yeah, so if you guys don't know what happened to your dues, he's the one to ask. We just do the Patreon. 
Congratulations, and in commemoration of your landmark 200th episode, I would like to share with you my reminiscences of discovering the TCW podcast. The first time I listened to the podcast, I was completely blown away and felt totally late to the party. You see, about six months before that, I fell deep into a rabbit hole trying to put all the arcade games of the 70s and 80s in chronological order. Still working on that one, by the way. Which unsurprisingly led to Keith Smith's inspirational All in Color for a Quarter blog. Great inspiration for me as well. Somewhere in the middle of devouring Keith's opus was a reference to another blog, They Create Worlds. Here was this other massive collection of posts dating back years, brimming with one lengthy, well-researched post after another. Still, I took a few more months to fully digest All in Color before even daring to jump into this new blog. At that time, thanks in part to lax employment, I had the fortune to be able to listen to podcasts, music, whatever, on a pretty much full-time basis. I'd stumbled around looking for video game history podcasts, but didn't find too many that were edifying. At some point in the middle of reading the blog, I learned of the existence of the They Create Worlds podcast, which got promoted to the top of the playlist. I started with the most recent available episode, but didn't even finish it in part because it was the second installment of the Williams story, and so did go back to the previous episode. But I didn't get very far into that one either. Alled that there were, like, 60 backlogged episodes of this stuff, I skipped back a few at a time, sampling if they all kept the same level of quality. Satisfied they did, and being a completionist, I rolled it back to the very first one and dug in. By about a dozen episodes in, I started keeping a notepad and pen nearby to jot down notes of information simply not found anywhere else frequently rewinding the playback on salient details or, in many cases, listening to the episode multiple times. Well, it took about four months to absorb that existing catalog. I'm not even going to confess how many times I listened to the three-part Great Video Game Crash series. But to my dismay, as I was catching up to real time, I listened to episode 66 on June 4th, 2018. I can pinpoint this date because it was the day after the first They Create Worlds livestream, and I had missed it by one day. Oh, just as bad. Now with the backlog of episodes exhausted, I'd have to wait two weeks in between new installments. Ever since, the wait has been worth it. Though I may not get to review every episode multiple times, I'm always thrilled to take the time to listen and apostolize to anyone who will pay attention. I bought the book, got the stickers. Reminder, we do have stickers. We will send them to you. But moreover, also became involved in an awesome community of like-minded folks digging into video games past with a solid background in research and history, in no small part due to They Create Worlds. For that, it's been a fantastic experience. Grateful for your tenacity and consistency, and wish you the best for, God have mercy for saying this, your next 200 episodes. Cheers to you both. Quarter past. Thank you so much, and Quarter Past has become a dear friend, and that's been another theme on some of these testimonials. I've just been so enriched by meeting other people that have the same interests that I do, interest in the history, interest in researching the history, joining discords and other communities with them, and that, for me, has been the most gratifying part of this journey, and quarter past, uh, you have certainly been a huge part of that, so thank you. Yes, I will send you stickers. So many stickers. I have stickers. Take them away from me! In the United States, it's immensely popular right away as well. Not going to hit Europe for a while longer, but of course it's going to take off there as well. It was also, interestingly enough, driven by a very uh, successful ad campaign in Japan. We don't normally talk about Japanese marketing campaigns. 
part of that's the cultural barrier, but part of it's also that I don't believe that a lot of the time, even the Japanese sources put much stock in marketing campaigns. They did this TV campaign that was kind of inspired by the movie Stand By Me, which had been incredibly popular in Japan. And it's these group of kids that are out in the wilderness, walking along, doing kid things. And it's Western. You know, it's not Japanese or Asian kids. It is very much Western kids. In one of them, they're hitchhiking through a desert, and they're waiting for cars to come. And so to pass the time, they get out their Game Boys and start playing, and a van drives by, and they're so engrossed in their games that they miss it. And so then they're running after to try to chase it down. Then in the other one, they're riding the rails like a bunch of Game Boy hobos, kind of trying to give a little bit of that Stand By Me vibe. Of course, after long days of travel, they're sitting around their campfires at night playing the Game Boy. These commercials were very effective, though uh, kind of a funny story that Gorge tells. Obviously, a lot of this info is coming from Gorge. She did a very in-depth book on the Game Boy that involved a lot of participation with former Nintendo engineers, uh, including Okada. Yamauchi almost didn't okay it because he was very upset because they were going to go to Australia to film it. And the reason they needed to go to Australia to film it is that they wanted summer scenes. It was winter in Japan. So they had to go to the Southern Hemisphere to get what they wanted. And that was much more expensive, of course. So Yamauchi was going to refuse to let him do it. And according to Okada, he just basically yelled back at Yamauchi. According to him, the exchange basically when Yamauchi said, don't you ever listen to what people tell you? And Okada shouted back, not when I'm right and you're wrong. Basically, Yamauchi was like, fine, do whatever you want. But if you screw up, <laughs> you're paying for the commercials yourself. For all I know, Okada's embellishing some, but it's still a cute tale. So that was a massive success. The system is just a huge success right out the gate. It finds its niche right away, and it's well entrenched before its competition can get there. The Lynx does come out at the end of 1989 in the United States, and it does very well in that first fall. They were expecting to sell maybe 100,000 units. They end up in that first fall selling 500,000 units, which is very good. They actually put effort into an ad campaign. The Tremels are not often known for spending money. They put a lot of effort into their ad campaign. The initial games made by Epics, uh, some of the ones that I mentioned, like Chips Challenge, California Games, the helicopter game, whichever blue one that is, too many blue helicopter games, you know, were a good, uh, solid launch lineup of games, and it was a very impressive-looking system. Sales, though, fell off very quickly afterwards. It was expensive, as we said, twice as expensive as the Game Boy. Once people owned it, they realized how horrible the battery life was. That was a huge turnoff. And there was not much continuing software support. Games were made for the system all the way to 1995. They were mostly done by 1993, but there were a couple that came out a little later. In that time, there were only 73 games released over the course of six years. It's like a dozen games a year. That is not sufficient support. And of course, most of the big licenses were held by Japanese companies that were never going to publish on this thing. They did get a port of Double Dragon, but for the most part, they were mostly confined to licenses that Atari had the rights to, rather than some of the other hot franchises out there. 
it falls off pretty fast. Worse, the 500,000 windfall ends up being a little bit of a problem because in order to meet that demand for half a million units in the United States, they had to cut off planned launches in Europe and Japan and divert inventory. They lost an opportunity to get a foothold in other territories at the beginning when nobody knew some of the drawbacks of the system, which meant that they never had an opportunity to gain a foothold in any of those territories, really, particularly Japan. The other thing that ended up being a problem, which was kind of funny in a way, is that it was considered very bulky. It was big. There's no doubt it was big. But according to R.J. Michael, I think it was Michael, it might have been Needle, according to one of the two, I forget which one, they had actually bulked up the case more as they were making it because they had heard in early focus groups that if they made it too small, it would seem kind of puny and not worth people's time. Which was a common thread in American thinking at the time. People that are familiar with the PC Engine versus the TurboGrafx-16 will recall that the PC Engine is tiny and the TurboGrafx-16 is definitely not. The reason they did that is because their focus group testing showed that if it was too small, Americans would think that they were not getting their money's worth. It had to be bigger. After they did do that, made it bigger, then people complained about how bulky it was. One interesting thing they did do, though, is that they did make the controls reversible so that you could play it left-handed or right-handed. On the button side of the console, there were buttons on both the top and the bottom, and the buttons did the exact same thing, so you could turn it upside down and reverse which hands were on the D-pad and and which hands were on the button. So that was a, a little interesting thing. The battery life and the lack of game support just killed it. It was never a major contender at all. They did try to work on the battery life situation. In 1991, they released the Lynx 2 which was a little less bulky and had a little better battery life, but it was too little too late. By that time, there was no stopping the Nintendo juggernaut, which was already firmly established. And going to new heights, the Game Boy, I think people know on some level that it was really the handhelds that kept Nintendo alive during a period when other systems weren't necessarily doing as well. More people think of that in the later period, the N64 period, the GameCube period, than they do in this period. Nintendo was doing okay in this period. It's not like they were doing horribly. But when the Game Boy came out, they were kind of caught in between with the Super Famicom being delayed, particularly in Japan. So the Game Boy coming in in 1990 and and selling a bazillion units, think of the United States by the end of uh, 1990, it had sold 5 million. In Japan, it was selling in incomparable amounts. That boosted their profits enormously, and this is what really allowed them to become, very briefly, the top company in earnings per employee. They overcame Toyota to become the top company measured in terms of earnings per employee, because they weren't that big a company, and they were just making money hand over fist, and a lot of that was the Game Boy. But of course, these were not the only systems out there, for who could forget the TurboGrafx Express? Good afternoon, Jeffrey and Alex. I almost didn't reach out, figuring you would be inundated with emails. But I realized a lot of listeners may be thinking the same, and one more can't hurt. I've been listening to the show for about two years. I first started listening after learning about the show when Alex was on 
the Video Game History Hour, to talk about Space War. I loved Alex's appearance on the show and immediately subscribed and started tearing through the backlog of They Create World and have been a fan ever since. My favorite memory is less a specific memory and more of a recurring theme occurring most recently with the Sega and CSK episode. That theme being, and I'm going to do my best to recall the oft-repeated phrase from the show, for something that has already happened, the past sure does change a lot. Yes, it does. (laughs) Indeed. As someone in their late 30s in IT, I see a tremendous value in understanding the history of technology to understanding where we're at, where we could be going, and to contextualize fast-moving trends. But since I lack any formal training in history, it worried me that my understanding of history shifted so much as new information came out. In fields I'm familiar with, I expect and embrace this. But with history, I worried that maybe I was missing something. It already happened, after all. Getting to hear both of you discuss not just the history of video games as an art form and an industry, but how you analyze it contextualize it, and from multiple contradictory sources come up with the most likely scenario has been incredibly educational. It has helped shape my understanding of history and how to think critically about it in ways that I could not have expected. I especially enjoy hearing episodes where you cover a topic that you covered years ago, where your skills have grown, or new resources have come out, or new material has been unearthed, and you explain how you've come to these new understandings. Not only do I enjoy better understanding the history you present and find the stories and presentation fascinating, but I also get some insights into how to better sharpen my own critical thinking slash analyst skills when it comes to history. As someone who's very much interested in video game history, I also appreciate the almost absurd level of detail Jeffrey puts into the show notes. I really appreciate adding new blogs to my reading list and finding new books to request from the library. The editing and production values are also so incredibly high that it's easy for them to be completely invisible to me as a listener. It sounds completely natural. The levels are well-matched. The conversation's tight and interesting. And I know the amount of work that has to go into making it seem so natural. The topics are so well-researched and presented, and the podcast so polished, I often recommend it to friends who may not have a deep interest in video game history since it is so polished and well-produced. Similarly, it is an added bonus that Jeffrey is based out of St. Louis, where I live, and Alex out of Atlanta. When talking to younger colleagues, I think there is a notion that the only real academic or technical work happens on the coast. So it is nice to be able to share a podcast that not only goes into the history of the buyouts and the consolidations that led to the coastal giants taking over, but also itself produced in the South and Midwest. When I mentioned that the podcast is kind of split between Atlanta and St. Louis, at least I think, I've seen it give people permission to dig into the history of the area or write the blog post they've been meaning to write. 
I hope that wasn't too much of a cheat to say my favorite theme rather than favorite moment, but thanks to such an amazing resource and congratulations on nearing episode 200. Thanks again, Chris. There's a lot for there to for Jeff to dig into, uh, but before I turn him loose, I just want to say that I'm particularly heartened by this one because so much of what goes on in the so-called content creation space, I do not consider myself a content creator, but in that space on podcasts, uh, YouTube and TikTok and wherever else is just about regurgitating one line of something that you've heard someplace, just telling a narrative as if you know everything and everything is true and trust me, this is the way it happens. While that kind of storytelling has a place, especially if it's well done, like the Revolutions podcast, which I adore, which is just providing the narrative but is well-researched and well-done, there's, there's no, nothing wrong with that. But one thing that I do like to try to do is show that history is messy. History is ever-shifting, and our understanding is different today than it was yesterday, and it's going to be very different 50 years from now than the understanding that I naively think that I have today. So I, I do like to expose where it makes sense, the multiple viewpoints, the conflicting evidence, and show how we do our best to pull something coherent out of that. because. As you quoted, and as I say, for something that has already happened, the past sure does change a lot. Thank you for appreciating all the work that goes into producing this thing. I've mentioned it before on other cases where roughly every raw hour of podcast you listen to, I spend probably eight hours editing, researching, messing around with it, trying to clean things up come up with, okay, what's a viable way of doing this? Poking out and going, I can't find this. What were you talking about? Or going, um, you said this, and I'm coming up with this other thing when I research it. Did you misspeak, or am I looking up something wrong? There's a lot of that. So, you know, it's it's 50-50. <laughs> it, 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 that one can go either way. Yes, it can. I listen to podcasts. I enjoy listening to them because it helps pass the time while I'm working, because I sit in a quiet office most of the time. Sometimes there's chaos, but I'm researching things or I'm working on something that's just mental labor, but just having something to listen to helps pass the time. And I hear those mistakes. I hear the breath and stuff that are in the podcast. I hear the long pregnant pauses and I'm like, tighten that up. Get to your point. There's podcasts where they go, and um, I was... So, yeah, if we're trying to present something that is professional, where someone can come back to this and really look at it and go, hey, this is a scholarly work, or at least a somewhat entertaining work, you want to get rid of those loss of train of thoughts and misspeaks and whatnot as much as possible. I can't get rid of all of them. I don't get rid of all of them. But everyone that is easy to get rid of, I do. There's times I re-record myself speaking where I listen to myself and I go, was I drunk while I was speaking at that point? We're just going to get rid of that and then I'm going to just say that again because, no, I don't like that. Sometimes there's things that Alex goes, oh, I completely messed up with that. We need to re-record this. He'll give me some timestamps and the recorded audio and then I just slip it right in there. By and large, like you say, it's more or less 
I worked to try and make it all level and sound cohesive without being super edited. That is a lot of work. It's a challenge. It's a constant learning process for me. I've spent a lot of time just listening to how do people do audio editing? How do people do this? How do people do that? And I go, how can I improve my process? How can I make it so I'm not spending eight hours per hour of recording (laughs) editing? And I've tried different things. Every time I make progress where I make it faster, it goes, oh, but then by having that, then I can do this more higher level of detail and editing. And it sounds so much better. I need to do that now. I don't know. Maybe I'm secretly a masochist. Secretly? Huh? (laughs) I said secretly? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Have you ever seen one of my live editing streams? I'm just sort of like standing there like a zombie going, and we're getting rid of that and that and that and that. While also singing, occasionally singing songs about the cats. I just want to say this, and I, you know, every time I appear on somebody else's podcast or get interviewed, I always go to great pains to to say this as well. This podcast would not happen without Jeffrey, because there is no way in heck I would sit down and edit all of this. I would lose the steam, lose the thread, whatever. My passion is getting the knowledge together and freebasing on the knowledge. But without what Jeffrey brings, this podcast would not happen. And I've been blown away since practically the beginning at how professional it has always sounded once uh, Jeffrey puts it through editing. Now, it has improved over time as Jeffrey has learned more. But even in the early days, maybe not the very first couple of episodes, but from a very early period in the podcast history, it already sounded so slick and professional. And that is entirely down to Jeffrey's editing. So thank you, Jeffrey. And only patrons can suffer through episode zero. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I kid, I kid. We're not going to talk about the TurboGrafx Express. We aren't. (laughs) That would just be silly. It's basically a portable TurboGrafx-16, which is not uninteresting as a concept, but is also something that never stood a chance, because the price-to-power ratio of this thing was just all out of whack. Uh, Of course, it was the PC Engine uh, GT in Japan, released in uh, 1990. It was largely backward compatible with the uh, Turbo Graphics, which was kind of interesting, but it was incredibly expensive. The screens that they used were very sophisticated and very complicated. They had a lot of manufacturing issues, and they were not able to get more than a few tens of thousands out into the world. It's an interesting also-ran, but it was definitely way, way, way behind. No, of course, the other competitor that we're really going to talk about is the Game Gear. We don't have huge amounts of information on the Game Gear in terms of its development history and whatnot. We do have a little bit, as I said at the top of the stream and also need to say for the benefit of the episode, I am indebted to the work of Ken Horowitz of Sega16.com, who is currently in the final stages of authoring a book on the Game Gear. He's authored several excellent books in the past, most uh, recently from Pinball to Pixels about Williams. So that's going to be a great book. 
He's, of course, compiled a lot of research, and he's done some of his own interviews, but on the Japanese side, where he has no more access than I do, he has translated a couple of interviews with Hiroshi Yagi, who was one of the production engineers on the system. That gives us a little bit of context to what was going on. I will not be going into nearly the depth he will be. So if you really want uh, the skinny on the Game Gear, you're going to have to check out that book, which should be out next year if all goes well. I will say that what we do know about the Game Gear is that it was definitely a reaction to both the Game Boy and the Lynx. May have stolen some ideas from the uh, fake citizen proposal made by Nintendo or by, from David Needle's Lynx work. But may not have. I mean, there is no solid proof of that. The main thing that they wanted to do is create a system that outperformed the Lynx while also being less bulky than the Lynx. They were also very much influenced by the Sony Handycam, which was a small camcorder that had come out recently. This idea that you can take a small, portable, high-powered electronic device with you was very instrumental to what they were thinking. Unlike both Needle and Michael and the Nintendo folks, they were also thinking in terms of what else you could do with this kind of hardware. They kind of had this philosophy of after. What do you do after? And the example that's given by Yagi is if you're on a skiing trip and you go skiing and let's say you record some video, you would have no way to necessarily view that video in all of its glory afterwards. Camera viewfinders back then still tended to be black and white. But if you had your game gear with you, you could plug into the AV port and watch it there. So they wanted to include an AV port and the ability for it to interact with other media because they thought that it could be something you used on the go for more than just playing games, though games were still going to be the heart of it. So that was kind of the rationale behind the game gear. That's about all I'll say about that. If you want more, you're going to have to read Ken's book. It does come out in 1990. It does okay over the next few years. I mean, it sells several million units. But it does suffer from the same problems that the Lynx does, which is that it is way more expensive than a Game Boy, and it eats batteries like you wouldn't believe. Now, it's cheaper than a Lynx. They really accomplished what they wanted to do vis-a-vis the Lynx. I mean, another reason that the Lynx crashes and burns in addition to the lack of software support is that the Game Gear was going to be a better bet than the Lynx in a lot of ways as a handheld system. And it was going to be cheaper to boot. And they sell 10 million of them. You know, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. It wasn't a failure. It was just going to never keep Nintendo up at night sweating about anything. Nintendo took the approach of making sure they had solid gameplay without overdoing the technology so that you had good long battery life. So yeah, that's kind of how things look in this period between 1990 and 1993. You have these systems on the market. The Game Boy is clearly leading the way. But the gravy train kind of ends in 1993. Sales are beginning to decline for everybody. The Game Boy's still selling. They're still selling millions a year. But the numbers are starting to dip. It's old technology at this point. 
logically, there should have been a successor waiting in the wings at about this point. But there wasn't because this was an R&D one thing, and Yokoi was not interested at this point in doing a rehash like that. They didn't have a successor going. And Yokoi was quite frankly getting tired. He was in his 50s. He had come up just before the fancier electronics, like integrated circuits, microprocessors, and all of that. He was always more comfortable with small, simple things than he was with more elaborate concepts. He felt like he didn't fit in at Nintendo anymore. He really wanted to leave the company. But he wanted to leave it on a high note. He wanted to provide one last hit before he left. After the Game Boy, he hadn't really done much for a couple of years. He hadn't had any failures. It's just he hadn't done much, period, for a couple of years. According to him and and the people around him, he didn't want to leave the company. He didn't want to just sit around for two years doing almost nothing and then say, oh, by the way, I'm going to leave now. Bye. And have people be like, oh, what? You were still here? So he decides he wants to do one more thing, and he has felt for some time that games were not advancing as they used to. And and there's some justification for this. We talked about this in our kind of crash that almost was episode and everything. The jump from 8 to 16-bit, it didn't change gameplay much. Graphics got more colorful, animations got smoother, there were more special effects, but gameplay was basically the same. There ain't that much difference between the gameplay of Super Mario Bros. 3 and Super Mario World. Super Contra and Contra 3, etc. I know I'm picking late uh, NES games and pairing them with early SNES games, which is kind of not fair, but it's still true. That's why he got taken in, quite frankly, by a startup called Reflection Technologies that was hawking a system where they used LEDs and mirrors, like our old pal the Adventure Vision, except with a headset where two mirrors were beaming into each of the eyes individually for a 3D effect. This is, of course, the Virtual Boy. Now, the Virtual Boy is a strange beast. It doesn't really fit on our spectrum of portable systems. A lot of people at the time assumed, quite logically, that this was meant to be the successor to the Game Boy because the Game Boy was pretty old at this point, and Game Boy and Virtual Boy both had boy in the title. But it really wasn't meant to be. It was its own separate thing. So we're not really going to talk about the Virtual Boy in this episode. We have to talk about it very briefly here, as I am doing, because it creates context for what happens next. But we're not actually going to talk about it. It was a disaster for a variety of reasons. The technology just wasn't there. The price just wasn't there. The headaches most definitely were there. So it was a complete failure. TCW Podcast has had an incredible ongoing run and is absolutely packed with fantastic gaming lore that is not only incredibly well-researched, but also highly entertaining and insightful. It's hard to find intelligent, balanced narratives that really push the field of game history, and we are incredibly lucky to have 200 episodes of such content. Although I can't get over the constant hate over those adorable logo turtles. What were you guys, plumbers in a past life or something? Ah, logo. Don't insult the fans, don't insult the fans. I listen to the TCW podcast while commuting to work, doing dishes, or folding laundry. So some of the greatest insights into video game history have been accompanied by raging curses at shitty drivers, scrubbing greasy pans, and wrapping socks. Somehow, I've managed to listen to 195 episodes so far in this fashion. 
which I believe at, at the time this was written was the sum total of what we had, because of course these came in over several months. Some moments stick out above others. One of my favorite memories was listening to the Mario podcasts at the time of the 35th anniversary. I was actually teaching game production and making a lecture on the evolution of Mario's art design. One morning I went through a McDonald's drive through and ate breakfast while listening to the story of Super Mario Bros. 2, not the Doki Doki Panic reskin. I knew parts of it already, but it was great to hear it told again and learn new elements I hadn't heard of before during this key month. It's moments where things time well with historical anniversaries, like hearing about the Macy's display of dancing Rob the Robots while picking up the groceries around Christmas time that I think really stick and help underscore the joy of learning about history. If you're a newer listener, I would recommend you pick episodes that align with anniversaries of historical events, since you can kind of relive the history or learn about what it was like during the same time of year as it happened. On a side note, it did take them about 190 episodes, but they finally built a better podcast with Blackjack and Hookers when they told the story of Koei. Maybe in another 190, they'll get to visual novels. <laughs> Devin. Uh, yeah, we, we very well might. Devin is another person that I've met through this journey of, of researching this history, even before I did the podcast. We've known each other. He did, along with Marty Goldberg, an absolutely fantastic look at the spread of space war in the 1960s. I cited in my book. It's online. We'll have to put it in the show notes now just to add another hour to uh, Jeffrey's editing time of episode 200 here. <laughs> because it truly is fantastic and uh, deepened my understanding of that topic. He also, it's unpublished, but uh, he was kind enough to share it with me. As we mentioned in our recent, at the time of this recording, Sumerian game episode, he was the first one as well to solve a lot of the conundrums around how we got from the Sumerian game in upstate New York to the Hammurabi game in 101 Basic Computer Games. Devin is a fantastic researcher of this stuff in his own right. Devin, you are a good friend, and I'm so glad that we've uh, gotten to meet through this process of trying to make sense of this uh, video game history snarl together. I know I've said it before, but I always thought of the podcast, and I kind of model the podcast off of the TV show Connections. Mm -hmm. It just takes something that's so simple, so inane, stuff that you would take for granted, and show the rich and vibrant history behind it. Yeah, we play a video game. What's the history behind it? Yeah, Tetris. I just put blocks down there. What do you mean there was an international incident about it? What do you mean there was shenanigans and it led to people wanting to make a Game Boy or something? It's just always fascinating that there's always more to anything that you interact with than many of us would give credit for. Meanwhile, the Game Boy is just kind of chugging along. Its best days are behind it. Its sales are dropping every year. They try to rejuvenate sales in 1993 with a price cut moving the system in Japan from 12,500 yen to 9,800 yen. Then in 1994, they release what they call the Game Boy Bros, which are just Game Boys, but they're colored now. Ooh. Yes, it's like Malibu Stacy with a hat. It was actually Shigisato Itoi who gave them the idea of doing this. They called them bros to kind of harken back to the Super Mario Brothers who, you know, are different colors. They're originally, you know, basically looked identical except being different colors. So they're kind of harkening back to that. 
But it didn't really change anything. It didn't really reinvigorate hardware sales, and software sales were continuing to fall. They were getting very near to the point where they were probably just going to discontinue the whole thing. But then Virtual Boy flopped. Yokoi still wanted to leave the company. You know, at the time, it was very, in some ways, logically assumed that he ended up leaving the company in disgrace over the Virtual Boy. I don't think that's true. Enough people that are around him, I mean, he claimed that wasn't true in his own autobiography before he died, but enough of the people around him have also agreed with his stance. I don't think it's true. He had meant for Virtual Boy to be his last project, though. He wanted to leave Nintendo and go to a startup where he could do simple, straightforward stuff with a small team again. He didn't like being in this large company. He felt out of place. Once Virtual Boy failed, he couldn't leave on that note. So he decided he had to do one last project before he left, but he had to choose something a little less complex and a little safer that would allow him to end on a high note. Which is why he decided that it was finally time to return to the Game Boy and create a smaller version, which of course became the Game Boy Pocket. The main thing that allowed them to shrink the Game Boy Pocket is that they were able to take it down from four batteries to two batteries, significantly decreasing the footprint of the battery cavity. Actually, it's kind of funny. In hindsight, they could have probably done that even in 1989. But what happened is that was right at the changeover in Japan between old-style zinc carbon batteries and newer-style alkaline batteries. Can't top the copper top. Keeps going and going and going. You may remember if you were a child of the 80s that suddenly companies like Energizer and Duracell were focusing all of their advertising on the long lives of their batteries. And that's because they had figured out how to make relatively cheap, it wasn't a new concept, the alkaline battery, but they figured out how to make relatively cheap disposable alkaline batteries, which absolutely revolutionized battery life much, much longer. They went with four batteries in the original Game Boy because that conversion hadn't quite happened in Japan yet in 1989. But by the time the system had released, it was already well underway, so they probably could have actually gotten away with it then, too. So it's not so much that they reduced the power consumption of the Game Boy on the Game Boy Pocket. It's that alkaline batteries were now widespread enough that they could assume everyone was using those and go down to two batteries. That allowed them to really, really take the profile down, and this was actually very important. There was a lot of skepticism at first within Nintendo about whether it even mattered to do this Game Boy Pocket. Because doesn't everyone already have a Game Boy? Yes, but I need a smaller one with a bunch of different colors that can go inside of my pocket. All the commercials told me so. <laughs> yes, but it's, it's not just that. There really was... Yokoi and the team discovered there really were people that would avoid electronics due to their size being too bulky. An encounter that Yokoi had while they were making the thing kind of reinforced this thought in his head. He was talking to a friend that didn't use a cell phone yet, didn't use cell phones because he considered them still too bulky. Because even though the Game Boy was relatively small, it really wasn't quite pocket-sized. 
this got Yokoi thinking that I think there are people out there that have probably avoided the system because it's a little bulkier than they want. He thought that getting it pocket-sized would actually drive sales, not just to people replacing their old Game Boys, but would actually expand the market to people that had never bought a Game Boy before. Of course, they also updated the LCD. They were able to find a less reflective, thinner glass that was just as resistant, which allowed it to be much, much, much more readable. Ironically, by this time, uh, the Game Boy was 7,800 yen, and the team decided that the pocket had enough innovations on it that they could sell it for 1,000 yen more. Yamauchi was like, no way you can do that. You have to make it for less than the standard Game Boy. You have to sell it for 6,800 yen, which sent them on a scramble to get the price down. The very interesting thing about this is that in this last-minute dash to get the price down to 6,800 yen, they very, very nearly cut out the link cable capability of the system. Oh, dear. Now, you have to understand, at this time, the Game Boy software market is nearly dead. They're getting to the point where the system doesn't have much life left in it, and software sales are in massive decline. Pokemon is under development at Game Freak, but nobody sees in that game, or in those games, I suppose I should say, something that is going to utterly transform the entire handheld market. Very few games used the Link cable capability. Very few players cared about playing multiplayer. So it seemed like a reasonable thing to get rid of. The software people, however, rebelled over this because they said, this has been a feature since the very beginning. There are people that use this. We can't just get rid of this. Apparently, it was a very heated discussion between the hardware and the software people on the project. Finally, they compromised. They changed the plug on the cables so that they would be less expensive and removed end caps to protect the link cable from uh, dust. They made it cheaper, but they did decide to keep the link capability. That's kind of a good thing, because the Game Boy Pocket was released in July 1996, and then some little games called Pocket Monsters Red and Green had released right before that in February of 1996. His work on the Game Boy Pocket done, Yokoi finally walked off into the sunset, to found his own small development company, Koto, taking some members of the staff with him. Yes, and then he got hit by a car. That happened as well. The funny thing is, most people unfortunately think about the Virtual Boy and think that the Virtual Boy was his last project. Think in large part because of Kent, probably, Ultimate History of Video Games. But that was not his last project. His last project was the Game Boy Pocket. The Game Boy Pocket was a phenomenal success. Well, I'm talking about at Nintendo, just to clarify. 
I didn't mean the last product he ever did, but you're right, I didn't say that right. His last product at Nintendo. But it wasn't. It was the Game Boy Pocket, which was a phenomenal success. Because right at the same time it came out, you know, Pokemon was coming out. In an incredible coincidence, it felt like they were made for each other. Because you had the Game Boy Pocket and what in Japan was called Pocket Monsters. Total coincidence, because Game Freak wanted to call their game Capsule Monsters. But they couldn't because that name was already taken, so they had to change it to Pocket Monsters. There was no coordination here whatsoever. But Game Boy Pocket and Pocket Monsters just hand-in-hand go down smooth. You have all these wonderful creatures with wonderful colors. You have this wonderful console with all of these wonderful colors. It's great. And it sells millions upon millions of units. It gets third parties back to the system, creating more software for it. You get games in a similar vein that also do very well, like Tamagotchi started as the Bandai Virtual Pets, but they also released Game Boy games based around Tamagotchi that did very well. You had Yu-Gi-Oh! that did very well from Konami. There was this whole new wave of monster hunting and uh, monster uh, battling games that came out after Pokemon. We're not going to go into huge detail on Pokemon in this episode. It's worthy of its own episode at some point. Suffice it to say, it completely changed the Game Boy's fortune, and it completely changed Nintendo's fortune in a time when the N64 was not gaining traction, particularly in Japan. Then when the GameCube wasn't gaining traction, the Game Boy was there to keep delivering ridiculous profits to Nintendo. While other systems like the Game Gear were bowing out just because they were reaching the natural end of their life, Game Boy just kept going stronger and stronger and stronger, selling millions and millions and millions of more units. In just a six-month period in 1997, they sold 5.13 million Game Boys worldwide. I mean, they had been steadily declining. I think they were only selling like 3 million or so Game Boys a year before that. Here, they're getting 5.13 million in six months. When they released their financial statements in uh, May 1998, over the last fiscal year, they reported selling 4.22 million Game Boys in Japan and 6.8 million in the rest of the world. Just to put context, they had sold just over 1 million in Japan just two years before that. Like, it was on its last legs. Suddenly, sales have jumped four times. Nintendo's overall sales increased by 25%, and its profits increased by 24%. They sell millions of copies, over 6 million uh, Pokemon Red and Green combined in Japan in less than six months. uh, When it was released as Red and Blue in North America, they sell 2.78 million copies in less than six months. It just takes off like wildfire, and it extends the life of the handheld market, and it extends the life of the Game Boy. As a result, they decide to do one final version of the Game Boy to send it off into the sunset. And that is the Game Boy Light. If you're saying to yourself, the Game Boy Light, I've never heard of that. That's because it was never released outside of Japan. What about my Game Boy Color? No, this is the last Game Boy, the Game Boy Light. Thank you very much. Oh. With a backlit screen. 
for the first time. Ooh. Because they first announced the Game Boy Light on February 19th, 1998, and then three weeks later, on March 7th, 1998, they announced an, oh, by the way, six months after it releases in April, we are going to release the Game Boy Color. Hmm. It's like, what? That doesn't seem to make sense. That's because that was never their plan. By this time, they were well into work on what was going to be their next system. The Game Boy Light was going to be their last version of the Game Boy, and they were already hard at work on a new system based on a 32-bit ARM 7 processor that would eventually gain the name Game Boy Advance. Hi, Alex and Jeffrey. I've heard you guys asking for listeners to write in with favorite memories from the show, so I'm finally getting around to it. I hope it's not too late for episode 200. You're just in time! That's right. So uh, just for context there, we did uh, receive uh, a few uh, additional ones after the live stream. And of course, since the episode wasn't coming out until December 15th, it meant that they could be included as well, just like this one. I started listening to the show in early 2021 when I started a new job with a long commute. I came across it when I was looking for information about Zork and Infocom. So it was my first episode. Since then, I've listened through most of your back catalog, and I listen to every new episode when it comes out. I appreciate some of the recurring bits, which you may not have put in there intentionally, but seemed to just naturally happen in conversation when you've been talking to someone for years. For example, after an imaginative paraphrasing by Jeffrey, I now feel like I can predict when Alex is going to say, Yes, something like that. Also, as a Douglas Adams reader since childhood, me too, I appreciate that no mention of digital watches goes by without noting that people thought they were a pretty neat idea. Listening to your podcast has enriched my life as a player and collector of classic games. Learning about the Plato system from your podcast led me to request a sign-on at CyberOne.org. And since then, I've enjoyed many nights playing mainframe RPGs like Avatar Online with my brother. Hearing about type-in listings in episode 85, Computer Game Basics, inspired me to look up type-in listings to add games to my TI-83 calculator and even write a simple game of my own in BASIC. My son has also become a listener of your podcast. One episode we especially enjoyed listening to together was episode 132, Eugene Jarvis. Before listening to this episode, I had not been aware of the connection between Jarvis and Raw Thrills. My son is very familiar with Raw Thrills as you can't go to any modern arcade without seeing half a dozen of their games. Looking at the present arcade market as compared to the Golden Age, it does seem like Raw Thrills is just a footnote compared to the days of Williams and Midway. But I think they have a pretty amazing story of their own, starting out in the early 2000s as the arcade market was collapsing and finding a way to be profitable and eventually dominate the smaller but relatively stabilized arcade market that exists today. Is it too soon for a follow-up? 
A couple of other episodes I have been waiting for you guys to make. SNK, Neo Geo, Apogee 3D Realms, The Learning Company, the creators of some of my first computer gaming experiences as a child, Think Quick, Midnight Rescue, and the sometimes shady history of plug-and-play consoles, Family Clones, TV Boy, Dendy, Jack's Pacific. Thanks for all the great conversations and insight that has helped me to get more out of my longtime hobby and keep up the great work. Will. Well, Will, uh, we must be about the same age because Think Quick was also one of my earliest games as a child. The school I went to when I was really young was a private school in Hawaii. So they had a few more computer resources than a lot of schools did at the time. So in addition to having a computer lab full of Apple IIs, we actually also had an Apple II in our classroom one year. I forget whether it was first or second grade at this point, but it was somewhere around there. We would each get a little bit of time uh, to be able to go back there and play on that uh, computer during the day. And of course, by play, it was all educational games. And Think Quick was the game that was on there. And I just, I was fascinated by that with the switches that you had to hit and the worms you had to avoid and the pieces of things you had to collect and that it had an editor where you could make your own stuff. Think Quick, I don't think, is one I've ever talked about as being a personal memory in in the history of the podcast here. But I definitely have very fond memories of that. And I think several of your ideas here would be great ideas uh, for topics that I have no doubt we'll get to eventually. The one other thing I wanted to say here that kind of goes back to one of our earlier testimonials as well about uh, Jeffrey and the editing. Part of the reason that it takes so long for Jeffrey to edit the podcast is that we don't work from a script. Everything happens in the moment. Obviously, I do a huge amount of prep work in advance, and I often have multiple sources open on my computer that I can refer to. I even make notes for myself sometimes if it's a particularly thorny topic, but we don't do scripts. We don't even do outlines, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I do outlines in my head, but uh, yeah, there's no written outline. Jeffrey has no idea what's about to happen. Pretty much all of my reactions is there in the moment. We do that deliberately because we do want to keep that conversational tone. Well, there's two reasons. One, I'm too lazy to write scripts. But the other reason, and this truly is a legitimate reason as well, it's not just laziness, is that we want to keep that spontaneity because we have known each other since the third grade, 33, almost 34 years at this point. You know, we've always been good friends and and best friends, and we have patterns of speaking to each other and ways of communicating with each other that have just built up over years and years and decades of interactions. One of the great things about doing this podcast together is we can inject some of that idiosyncratic banter and some of our inside jokes into the podcast and, and have that conversational feel and make it sound like you really are coming and sitting down at the dinner table just as, as Jeffrey used to do and listen to me talk about some of the things that I've learned in video game history uh, or listen to Jeff talk about some of his experiences with technology and IT that can inform some areas that that I don't have as as much knowledge of myself. And we want it to feel like that kind of natural conversation. And so I'm glad that that comes through, and I'm I'm glad people uh, appreciate some of those uh, running gags and inside jokes and and ways we just talk to each other. 
Now, if I can only figure out how to have a running tally of bonus points for people, and then they can turn them in for prizes. <laughs> bonus points if you get those references. <laughs> ah, there was another reference! However, something quite unexpected happened, which is that after Yokoi left Nintendo to found his own little company, he ended up making a deal with Bandai to create a little system called the Wonder Swan. The Wonder Swan was in most ways superior to the Game Boy. It was also going to be cheaper, undercut in price. It was also going to have better battery life. This was a legitimate threat to the Nintendo hegemony of handheld. While their forthcoming 32-bit system was going to blow it out of the water whenever that came out, it was not coming for a while. Compared to the Game Boy Light, it wasn't going to be close, and Bandai had a lot of very celebrated franchises of its own, media franchises. They were certainly going to be able to get support of some of the companies that were kind of mad at Nintendo at the moment, like Namco and Square. The Wonder Swan was really a threat. So Yamauchi mandated that we need to steal a march on them. We need to get a color Game Boy out before the Wonder Swan so that we have that one major leg up on them, that we have a color screen. And of course, we need to have a Pokemon game to go with it because the other leg up we have is nobody has Pokemon. So the Game Boy Color was a system that was never actually supposed to exist, but ended up being rushed to market in order to forestall the Wonder Swan. And yes, I am well aware that SNK was also releasing the Neo Geo Pocket. It can go sit in the corner with Turbo Express. <laughs> this was really a fight between Nintendo and Bandai, between the Game Boy and the Wonder Swan. There's not a lot more to say about that in the context of our overview here. They do get the Game Boy Color out before the Wonder Swan comes out. They have some problems with Pokemon Gold and Silver. It goes through some delays. It does finally get out near the end of 1999, though with fewer copies than anticipated. There were supposed to be 3 million available at launch. There was only 1.8 million available at launch due to an earthquake in Taiwan that hit the factory. They were still able to get 5 million copies onto shelves by the end of the year. Gold and Silver continued to push the Game Boy to fantastic new heights of success. The Game Boy Color was very successful as well. The entire combined sales of the Game Boy systems moved to over 100 million units. Both SNK and Bandai tried to counter by releasing color systems of their own. It's too little, too late. Game Boy wins. Game Boy Advance comes out. And everybody lives happily ever after if they happen to be Nintendo people. And that's it. That's where we're calling it. We are. That's right. We've gone up to the end of the Game Boy's life. That was the logical place under our revised system here to stop. So, to summarize, calculators beget pretty blinking lights on a keypad 
he gets better blinky light of LEDs, which begets interesting cathode ray tube light that look kind of like a screen that begets something that we would actually consider a little handheld game with LCDs that look like Tiger Electronics games all the time until they get the technology to look really cool. And then we got the Game Boy and everything went to pot for everyone else except for Nintendo. <laughs> yep. Sony's going to come along in their hubris. We don't have time for that. So uh, there you have it. That is the broad history of handheld gaming from its very beginnings to the uh, end of the 20th century, our revised stopping point. Well, Alex and I would like to wish all of you downloading this a happy and safe holiday season. Oh, yes. Or at least I will. I don't know about Alex. Uh, yeah, sure. Holidays. Have fun. Don't kill yourself. That's right. All right, Jeffrey. We, we did it. 200 episodes in the can. Can you believe it? 200 episodes times 8 times 2. Don't, 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 don't do that math. Times Avogadro's number, 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. <laughs> oh, God. Just, 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 it's collapsing just, just don't go in on itself. It's collapsing. <laughs> the live chat is, it's, it's here with me, Alex. The live chat is with me. It's keeping me company. It, what? Oh, no. What's that? Live chat? You want me to burn things? Okay. Abort! Abort! Well, uh, I guess this is the 200th and last episode of <laughs> They Create Worlds. But seriously, folks, thank you so much again for everyone, whether you have been with us from our somewhat janky episode one, or if 200 is literally the very first one you've downloaded. Thank you so much uh, for being a part of this journey with us. Thank you to everyone uh, who wrote in testimonials. They really filled us. And, you know, it, it is good to know that what you're doing is is making an impact on someone. And we really appreciate all the ways that it has made an impact on people. We want to end this episode with one final testimonial. If you've been listening for a long time, you'll, you'll know that uh, words that often get uttered are uh, Ethan Johnson, a friend of the show. He has been with us for a very long time. He has become a very, very close and dear friend of mine, and certainly my closest confidant on all matters of uh, video game history research and scholarship. So we felt it was only fitting to give him the last word. He did an audio message for us, and he instructed Jeffrey not to let me listen to it until we did the live stream. He thought maybe I wouldn't even see the email. I did see the email, but I did follow his instructions. I did not listen to it, so obviously I've heard it now because we're recording this after the live stream, but I heard it for the first time on the live stream. So to play us off here, here is Ethan Johnson, friend of the show. Hello, Jeffrey. Alex. This is Ethan Johnson, friend of the show. I can say I've been with They Create Worlds since episode two. Thanks to Dario for letting me know that the show was worth listening to in a time when I was honestly avoiding podcasts, which is extra funny now. I came to find Alex's research through Keith Smith, no relation, after I had found the likes of Jimmy Mayer and The Dot Eaters. Those neophyte days of our video game history, obsession, 
has led us down many amazing adventures, preserving memories now long past, and coming up with metaphors to explain this complicated history to others. Jeffrey and Alex have added to this conversation in many, many ways, and have, legitimately, changed my life. Jeffrey introduced me to Reaper, which radically changed everything that I knew about sound production on a semi-pro basis. Not wanting to be locked into the Mac world or wanting to pay $1,000 for a side hobby, he provided me with a way to express myself in forms I hadn't thought possible. Not only did Jeffrey's audio tips help me in my own video series, I even used Reaper as a DAW to compose music, which has now been professionally recorded. So, I can't thank you enough for that. As for Alex, I know that he can relate in having nobody to talk to about the serious aspects and specific details about video game history. Shouting into the void being replaced with interaction, even if I did need to prove my worth to him at the beginning, has provided me with a whole new motivation to pursue this subject. He has directed me to the best path for evaluating sources, provided many stimulating disagreements, and has ultimately provided me with a friendship that I value. Not to get sappy or anything here, we trade book dedications for a reason, folks. I won't proclaim that I'm the greatest TCW fan, but I do listen to every episode at least twice, so at least that puts me nearer to Jeffrey's commitment. Passively absorbing the information which Alex has more inherently baked into his head than I do definitely has given me a lot more to think about as I tackle my own way through video game history. I may be the only person to have made They Create Worlds memes, which I included in this message to Jeffrey, and he can share that with the wider world. To sum up, TCW is full of tangents, excessive information, inside jokes, and no current news, making it worthless as a gaming podcast. I give it an 8 out of 10 IGN. Don't let Jack Commodore know. Peace. We're going to leave the Christmas present a mystery for now, and that is what we will talk about in our next episode, because I'm sure Alex does not want to come up with that right now. No, traditionally, this is the one time at the end of the live stream where we don't tell people what's coming next, because we have just been doing this for, uh, what's the counter say? Let's see, 10 hours and 19 minutes. That's right. 10 hours and 19 minutes, of which about 9 hours and 19 minutes of that was actually doing things, since we only took a couple of, like, half-hour breaks. Definitely not the time to think about what's happening next, but thank you, everybody, uh, as always, for listening. Thank you for supporting us uh, over all of these years, all of these episodes. Thank you to everyone in chat, some of whom are crazy people that have been there from the beginning of this stream and stuck with us the whole way. We love you all. It's been fun. We are so proud to have reached 200 episodes, and uh, we are definitely looking forward to 200 more. And thus, we will see you next year in episode 201 on They Create World, the people and companies that shape the video game industry, volume 201. And don't forget, kids, there's something very important here. You can always check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com. We have linked to some of the things that we discussed for 10 hours in this episode. You can check out Alex's video game history blog, updated once every 10 years, at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, is now available at CRC Press and at major online retailers. 
Volume 2 to come out somewhere in the next five years. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. We don't talk about our Twitter anymore because it becomes some sort of weird X place and that just sounds too close to triple X and I'm just scared of it now. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. If you do not leave us a review, we will be sad. If you leave a three-star, two-star, one-star review, we will be particularly sad. But if you decide to do that, that is your prerogative. But I suggest you suggest how we can get into your good graces with a four or five star. Intro music was Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. The same applies to the intro video we did for the live stream. Outro music is non-existent at this point, but that's okay, because we also did on-hold music, which was provided to us generously for free with Creative Commons attribution license from GameChop. We like them, they have nice music, listen to them, that's why you could see what song it was, that's how you get to do the Creative Commons awesome thing. And thus, we're going to say goodbye now, and press the big stop button. So, goodbye kids.